You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So on Friday morning, June 26th, when I woke up, uh, I was married to my husband, Terry, in Washington. And if we wanted to be single, if I did not want to be married, I had to drive to Nebraska to become a single man again. By Friday afternoon, I had to go farther to be a single man again. The United States Supreme Court, in a decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is going to go down in history as a hero to the LGBT civil equality movement decided that the Constitution did indeed guarantee, wrote that the Constitution did indeed guarantee two same-sex couples under equal protections grounds the right to marry. And kablooey, the world blew up and I was suddenly a married man in all 50 states and same-sex couples could get married in all 50 states. It was already legal in 37 There were just 13 holdouts and they all got marriage equality on June 26th or just marriage. We can just call it marriage now. But Friday afternoon, I got on an airplane and I flew to Australia. I was going to Melbourne in perhaps the worst timed speaking gig I have ever agreed to do, a gig that I uh, very much enjoyed. I spoke to a bunch of doctors in Melbourne, Australia, and I went to talk to doctors about why so many of their patients are afraid to talk to them about their sex lives. And it was a great gig, but I agreed to it about a year and a half ago, and I was stuck. I couldn't get out of it on June 26th, 2015, when I wanted to do nothing more than lay in bed with my husband in all 50 states, when I wanted to consummate that new deal 50 times, once for you, Alabama, once for you, Texas, once for you, New Hampshire. I had to get on an airplane and fly to Australia and be a single man. And the other thing I wanted to do besides symbolically consummate my marriage in all 50 states, I wanted to come into this office and record sort of a celebratory podcasty rant about what we had achieved about the the tremendous change. Andrew Sullivan wrote, uh, Andrew Sullivan, of course, has been a champion of marriage equality for 30 years. He wrote a really groundbreaking essay in The New Republic uh, many, many, many years ago, decades ago. Uh, He said on his blog, he revived the dish, his blog that he retired from. He shut down the dish. He came back to the dish for one day to write a post. And he began that post by saying, as Gandhi never quite said, there's this famous quote, that people attribute to Gandhi that he never really quite said. But as Gandhi never quite said, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And there has never been a better example of that not quite Gandhi quote, I think, in the history of American politics than this. When people first started agitating for rights for same-sex couples to marry, people laughed. And not just straight people. Queer organizations. You know, there's this myth now among the sort of sex radical far lefty queer left, the Tumblr kids, that marriage equality was this conspiracy on the behalf of mainstream gay rights organizations that are in the pocket of wealthy gay white men to direct all the energy of the gay liberation movement that had been focused on securing the right of everyone to suck a million dicks to 
getting these marriage rights and military service. And that just was not true. Marriage was same-sex marriage. The press for it was a grassroots movement. And the pioneers in that movement, the Andrew Sullivans, the Roberta Kaplans, the Mary Bonotos, and primarily, and at the top of the pile, the Evan Wolfsons and the individual couples who sued in Hawaii and Massachusetts, they did not have the backing of mainstream queer rights organizations. They were out there on a limb on their own. The first couples that sued, same-sex couples that sued for the right to marry in Hawaii, a decision that came down from the Hawaiian Supreme Court in 1993 that really kick-started the movement and the pushback. Hawaii Supreme Court in 1993 ruled that same-sex couples had a right to marry and that's when we got the Defense of Marriage Act. That's when they began to fight. Prior to that win, they were laughing at us. And by they, I mean not just straight people who oppose marriage equality, but also queer people who oppose marriage equality. And that couple that filed that suit, those couples in Hawaii, they had to hire a straight lawyer. They couldn't find a lawyer at a queer rights group that would represent them in that fight. It was a grassroots movement. And they laughed and we fought and we argued and we won. And I wanted to be here so badly not just in this room uh, talking to you guys, but in the streets at the pride parade. I missed the pride parade on what was probably the most celebratory pride parade ever. But when I got to Australia, I had three days in Melbourne in a hotel room all by myself, really lovely hotel room all by myself. And a weird thing happened. I didn't jump on my blog. I didn't write a lot of posts. I didn't do a lot of tweeting. I went to a lot of movies I had nothing to do for three days except try to adjust my clock. So I was awake to give a speech on the Tuesday morning when I was there. So I found myself wandering around downtown Melbourne by myself, all alone, a single man, an unmarried person temporarily and again, come the fuck on Australia, two nations in the English speaking world in the Anglosphere, just two do not have marriage equality, Northern Ireland, the Republic of and Australia. Come on, Australia. Do you really want to be fucking last? Come on, Tony Abbott. And I just, I felt done, done with this issue. We have been making this argument for our civil equality, for our right to marry for 25, 30 years. I have been making that argument also. I wrote a book called The Commitment about marriage. I wrote op-eds for the New York Times. I stumped for it in my columns and at my newspaper, The Stranger in Seattle. We would do issues dedicated to marriage equality and people would laugh at us. People would think we were ridiculous. We would pin every single candidate who came into our offices at our newspaper and asked for endorsement. We would pin them down on marriage. We would demand – if they were running for the sewer control board, if they were running for city council, for school board, even if it was completely irrelevant to the race, we made them tell us where they stood. Because we wanted to hold them to it if they ran for higher office ever. We fought and fought and fought and fought and said and said and said and said. We wrote the books. We made the arguments. We wrote the op-eds. We ran our mouths on TV. Evan and Andrew and Mary and Roberta and EJ Grapp. We all did it. Jonathan Roche. We all did it. John Corvino. We made the arguments. We had the debates. One of them in my goddamn dining room with Brian goddamn Brown. And I was just sitting in Australia thinking, I have nothing left to say about this. I'm, I'm done. And then when I got home from Australia and got on Twitter, 
There's my old friend, Peter LaBarbera from Stop Homosexuality International, baiting me on Twitter into an argument about marriage equality. And there's Ben fucking Shapiro, the right-wing scold and an idiot, trying to bait me into an argument about marriage equality. And I just thought, I don't have to argue with these motherfuckers anymore on this. We have to defend this right. There will be an attempt to take marriage back just as there have been attempts to roll back voting rights and roll back abortion rights. We will have to defend this. But they've lost the argument at every level, public opinion, Supreme Court, and everything in between. They've lost the argument and we don't – I don't have to talk to Peter LaBarbera anymore. I don't have to entertain Ben Shapiro's idiotic arguments anymore. They can go fuck themselves and I can – Talk to you guys. We can talk about sex. We can talk about your problems. We can talk about other stuff that matters. We can talk about rights for trans people. We can talk about protecting LGBT youth. We can talk about services for LGBT elders. Evan Wolfson had a great op-ed in the New York Times after the victory laying out the other things that need to happen for LGBT people in this country before we can achieve true equality, including the passage of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Right now, you can get gay married in Alabama on Sunday and gay fired in Alabama on Monday when your employer finds out that you're queer. That's untenable. That's got to change. And it will change because we're going to stay in this fight. But we're going to move on to the other stuff that we want to win, the other stuff that we're going to argue for, the other victories that we are going to have. And we don't have to play in Brian Brown's sandbox anymore. We don't have to play in Peter LaBarbera's sandbox or Ben Shapiro's sandbox anymore. It's over assholes and you lost. And we as a movement are doing what movements do. We have secured a victory and we are moving on in an effort to secure future victories. And you clowns, you can fuck yourselves. When I opened my computer, I kept going back to Kennedy's decision. I kept rereading Kennedy's decision it was almost as if I thought if I go back to the decision, it's going to disappear. It's going to evaporate. It's not going to be there. It's not going to be what I thought it was, that it was kind of a dream. And I kept rereading it to assure myself that, no, this is really what he said. This is really what happened on Friday morning as I was running to the airport. And I'm not going to read huge chunks of it to you, but I am going to read to you the last paragraph, which is going to be, I think, incorporated into many, many wedding ceremonies, both straight and gay, going forward. And it is beautiful. And I want to share it with you, but I do think that you should jump online and read the entire decision. As I have several times now, you should read the entire decision. It is beautiful. And it is the product of so much effort, energy, activism, blood, sweat, and tears. And I just want the chance to read it aloud myself. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. It is so ordered. Those are the four words that when I read them, 
kind of break my heart. It is so ordered because ordered has more than one meaning. Queer people, gay people, lesbian people, bi people, what had we been labeled for so long? Disordered. In a way you can read, it is so ordered as the judgment of the court ordering the 50 states to recognize same-sex marriage, to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples, to recognize the validity of same-sex marriages performed in other states. They made that order. But also, in a way, it kind of means, or to me it means, to me it resonates with that insult, disordered. When I see those four words, it is so ordered. I see generations of gays and lesbians and bi people who came before who are not here to savor this victory, whose lives were destroyed by that disordered label. There's no retroactive justice that can come to them. But the court and the culture and the public are recognizing that same-sex couples, that gay people, that gay love, lesbian love, is ordered. It is the opposite of disordered. It is healthy. It is good. It is equal to the love that straight people can and do feel for each other. It is ordered. It is so ordered. Anyway, glad to be back, back in the office, back in the United States where I'm legally married. Come on, Australia. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. My question is about why once a guy starts talking to me at a bar or at a party or like in a class, whatever, in whatever social setting, why after they start talking to me is it that like it never gets further than that? So what normally happens is that I go to a party or whatever, and um, here's a perfect example. I went to a party with a friend, and as we're walking in, this guy, like, shouts across the room, like, hey, who's your friend? Introduce us. And either he's, like, a really friendly guy or he finds me attractive. And so I feel like I have that part down that, like, I can attract the other person because, you know, I'm like, (laughs) it sounds so funny, but, like, I'm physically appealing to another person. But then once they start talking to me, it's like there's no interest whatsoever after that. So with this particular person, you know, they shouted across the party, hey, introduce us. So I introduce myself and I tell the guy, yeah, um, I'm attending college right now. I just got out of the military, blah, blah, blah. What do you do? And I make sure always to ask like the other person, well, what do you do? And I try to be really interested because I am. So I try to show how interested I am. But for some reason, and this isn't the first time it's happened, but it happens a lot where, like, at first the guy seems really excited to talk to me, and I think it's mostly because they find me attractive, but then the conversation just, like, it just tanks. And I've talked to, like, family, of course, and, like, (laughs) I talked to my grandma about it, and she was like, well, are you over-talking this person? And I was like, no, 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 no. I, you know, I give them a chance to talk and I don't interrupt. And my grandma's like, no, 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 you talk too much. And I think that could possibly be the issue. But, um, but yeah, I'm just curious, could it be something else? Could it be the fact that, like, I've done a lot of things in my life already? I'm only 26 and I've been in the military. I'm working on my bachelor's degree. I have plans to get my master's. Um, I have, like, the next 10 years planned out because that's just how I am. But yeah, I was just curious if you had any insight. 
as to why this might be happening a lot. I have it on good authority that horny straight guys will fuck annoying girls that they think are hot. So if they think you're hot enough to shout across the room to you and to finagle an introduction, yeah, maybe you are doing something wrong during that initial conversation. Maybe you are rattling on about yourself in a way that makes the other person think twice about sticking their dick in you. Maybe you come across not as driven but as crazy. It's wonderful that you have the next 10 years of your life plotted out, but it is going to be a turnoff if you walk people through the next 10 years of your life in the first 10 minutes that you interact with them. You need to listen to grandma, I think. Your friends and and people who are with you in the room when these things happen, when it goes down, they're in a much better position to tell you what you might be doing wrong. And maybe it's not how you talk. Maybe it is just that you're a little older, you're getting your bachelor's degree, you, you're much more experienced, you've seen th- things and done things that the guys that you're meeting who may be younger and less experienced than you are have not and they're just intimidated and bolting and you should go fuck some graduate students, right? Maybe that's the solution or maybe you have halitosis or maybe you say or do something in the moment that's a turnoff. Ask friends to observe. Do a little field study, a little sociology. Go to a party Ask your friend to be Jane Goodall and you're going to be the chimp. And when the other chimp approaches you, you ask your friend to observe. And then if that other chimp wanders off, seems very interested at first and then wanders off, you turn to your Jane Goodall friend and you say, tell this chimp what this chimp did wrong. And invite them to be brutally honest. Unless you're inviting me to tag along with you on the next kegger at your college, uh, asking me isn't the best route to an answer that might be useful. Ask your friends. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 20s lesbian in a super awesome relationship, and I'm engaged to a lady who is my closest to number one I'll ever get. She's smart and hilarious and super supportive, and we're both totally GGG and completely in love. It feels like it should be perfect, but I still get distracted by desires for other people. To be a little bit more specific, I have the occasional sexual attraction to men. It's never other women, but just men, older men in particular. And it would be really easy for me to find a guy to fuck on the side, but I have no idea how to bring this up to my fiancé. She's very monogamous, and although I wouldn't call her heterophobic or anything like that, I know for sure she would be uncomfortable with the idea of me fucking guys. There would be no risk of me developing feelings for these hypothetical fuck buddies because I'm in love with my partner and I'm just not emotionally attracted to men. It would be purely sexual and just for fun. I don't even want to fuck guys all the time. I just want an occasional free pass to meet a dude, tell him the truth that I'm gay and engaged, and then fuck his brains out, and then go home to my wonderful future life. Uh, what would be the best way to bring this up without making my fiancé feel insecure or hurt or betrayed? Is it inevitable that she would feel those things or not? I mean, should I maybe keep the desires at bay until we've been married for a while and then suggest it. She's kind of open to the idea of having threesomes with other women, uh, which is awesome, but we haven't really explored that side of our sexual relationship yet. We've just been doing, you know, our thing together. 
Yeah, the best strategy here is to not share this information about your sexuality with the woman that you love and you are about to marry, who's about to make a lifetime commitment to you, and then to wait till after you're married for a while, maybe after you've had a couple of kids, and then drop this bomb on her. Yeah, she's not going to feel betrayed then. You want to control for feelings of betrayal? Here's how you roll this out. Earlier. Years ago, when you met, you rolled this shit out. You have presented yourself on this call as a gay woman. It sounds like you're a bi woman. You are bisexual but homoamorous, right? You are in love with women. You don't feel that emotional connection with men. But you like to fuck guys every once in a while. The woman who is about to marry you has a right to know that, particularly if that's something that you feel for your own sense of fulfillment – or for your own not going out of your mind, that's something you're going to have to act on every once in a while. That's something that you needed to disclose before the engagement. I don't think that relationships are depositions. I don't think you have to answer every question. I don't think you have to disclose every single fact about yourself. There are some things that we protect our partners from, some truths that are that would squick them out or are – that are really trivial but perhaps problematic and you're allowed to you're allowed to stuff the occasional piece of shit down the memory hole without having to throw it on the table, right? So long as it's not ever going to have an impact on your relationship or your partner, but this isn't of that kind. This is going to have an impact on your partner. An emotional impact. There are sexual risks built into this for your partner that she has a right to consent to from an informed place, if you go out there and fuck some other guys, rando guys, you are at higher risk of contracting a sexually transmitted infection because you have more partners than just her. And so if that's what she's signing up for, she has to actively, knowingly, from an informed place, sign up for that. So disclose this. And who knows? Maybe your partner has hidden depths. Maybe your partner feels the same way you do. Maybe your partner is like so many of those lesbians who've called my show to tell me that they're sitting on dicks, right? They get me in trouble when I run those calls with lesbians who don't sit on dicks. Maybe she is sitting on the same secret and can't bring herself to tell you because you're a gay lady. She proposed to a gay lady and she's presented herself as a gay lady. And how does she unpack this desire every once in a while for dick to you? Better to risk losing this relationship through honesty and disclosing this very pertinent information that your partner has a right to know before marriage better to risk losing it than to withhold this information and explode your relationship at some point down the road. If you disclose this now, it might not be a problem or maybe it could be a problem that you could work through. Maybe allowing you to run off and sit on a dick every once in a while is a price of admission that you're fiance is willing to pay to have you in her life and you guys can have a knockdown drag out fight about that and work it out and come to terms and everything will be rosy or maybe she'll be like oh really me too maybe we should have occasional three ways with dudes and you guys will be like yahtzee or maybe she's wrong for you and you're wrong for her and the time to determine that is now before you allow her to say i do to you under assumptions that you know to be false. Right now, she assumes that you are a lesbian, 
like her. She assumes that you don't need dick any more than she needs it. And we are now assuming, I am assuming that she is a lesbian who doesn't want dick at all. And that's not true. And it is not fair of you to allow her to go forward with those false assumptions. It is misleading. It is emotionally abusive. It is dishonest. So go tell your fiance what you've told us and let the chips fall where they may. It may mean the end of this relationship. It may take this relationship to a more honest place. It may mean you wind up in a relationship down the road with someone who would make a better partner for you than she would if indeed this is a deal breaker. Hi, Dan. I am a 40-year-old single female calling about my relationship with my 16-year-old son. We practice in our home having a very open and honest family relationship. Also to the point that we have told him that his uncle was arrested for uh, having gotten a DUI. We were honest about that. We were honest that his aunt died because of her addiction to alcohol and its impact on her liver. The reason that I'm calling is related to how honest to be about my own childhood sexual abuse at the hands of my mother. I don't have an adult relationship with my mother, and neither do my children. I've told the kids that my mom is quote-unquote a jerk. I've told them that she's quite the Republican and that she's racist, all of which are true. But the number one reason why I don't have a relationship with her is because of the sexual abuse and to protect my children. Now that my son is in a serious relationship, I want to start having conversations with him about consent as it relates to his relationship. And I'd like your opinion on when and if it's appropriate for me to disclose my own personal story, obviously being appropriate. And could that help him, or is it too much information? Your history of sexual abuse at the hands of your toxic mother, and my heart goes out to you, is irrelevant to the fact that your son is now dating. It is irrelevant to the topic of consent. You can have a conversation with your kid. We should all be having conversations with our kids about consent and what it is and what it isn't and what active, enthusiastic consent means and how to obtain consent and how to give consent. That's a huge part of sex education that we don't go into because having those conversations about consent means talking to your kids about how you talk someone into having sex with you or how you allow yourself to be asked to have sex with somebody else. It's really about saying yes and so much sex ed is predicated on trying to get kids to say no and a conversation about consent is a conversation about yes. And you can have that conversation with your kid without going into your family history, which is not to say you shouldn't disclose this fact about your relationship with your toxic, shitty mother that you rightly protected your kids from, cut out of your life, and may have rescued your kids from abuse at her hands. You cut that chain of abuse, that cycle of abuse, all right? You deserve ribbons for that and credit for that. And you can have absolutely a conversation with your son about that. But that is a separate conversation than the conversation about consent. Yes, 
your ability to consent was clearly violated if you were abused by a parent as a child. There's no consent there. Consent cannot be granted in that circumstance. And that's easy, I think, for your son to understand. That kind of violation is – when we discuss consent, it is easy and it's obvious. There's no consent there when a child is raped, right? So the conversation that you want to have with your son about consent, the example of the violation that you experience at the hands of your mother is not really relevant. It's not a really good example to your son. You want him thinking proactively about consent and what it is and how it's granted. Unless your son is thinking about having sex with children, which he isn't, then this doesn't tie in. You need to be having conversations with your son about much more ambiguous situations where he may think he has consent but he doesn't, where if, you know, somebody not objecting to whatever it is you're doing is not someone consenting to what it is you're doing and you can't make those kinds of assumptions, particularly if he's a young straight boy and girls are socialized not to say no to guys and to be deferential. And so it is on him to be very solicitous of the consent of any girl that he's going to bed with because he should know that there are certain cultural settings, a certain zap that's been placed on her head that may make it difficult for her to actively say no to him. So he needs to actively solicit a yes from her. And absent that yes, he shouldn't proceed with whatever he's doing. That's the conversation about consent you need to have with your son. You can have a conversation about the fact that in addition to all the other reasons that he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with his grandmother, there is also this. Maybe it will help him not understand consent better because again, the consent issue in that situation is obvious, but to understand you better and to understand who you are and to understand the emotional dynamics in his family, to have a better understanding of why he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with his grandparent. And there are plenty of people out there who have shitty grandparents who say racist things and aren't very nice who are still allowed to have relationships with those grandparents. He may have friends who have shitty racist grandparents who have relationships with their grandparents. He may feel cheated that whatever his grandmother's flaws are, including racism, which he can challenge or overlook or set aside or put up with, he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with her. Knowing this may be the missing piece that helps him understand and, and be at peace with the decision you made to protect him and your other children from her. And you absolutely, I think at age 16, 17, 18, kids are old enough to hear this, to know about this. You can share that, but it's a separate conversation. Have a conversation with your son about consent, what it is, what it looks like, how to get it, how to give it. And then at another time, when you want to open up to your son about this painful fact about your upbringing, about your relationship with your mother, about your having been violated by your mother and the steps you took to protect your kids from your mother, have that conversation separately. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old female living on the East Coast, and I had a question for you about my boyfriend. We met on a dating site, and we've been together for 
six months now. The relationship's amazing. Um, we are a little long distance. I like to call it short distance relationship because it's just two hours. Um, enough to where um, we don't see each other every day, but we usually see each other once a week to once every two weeks. Sex has been really, really good. I'd say up until probably the last two to four weeks. Um, and I started to notice that it was being a little forced. So, of course, I'm a girl. And number one thought in my head is that something's wrong with me and he's not attracted to me. So I did confront him about it. And I just asked him, I said, you know, I just feel like this, uh, the sex has been a little forced here lately. And I was curious to see if it was something, you know, about me and you weren't attracted to me anymore or anything like that. And he said, no, definitely not. And, um, that he was still attracted to me. He just said it has been a little forced and he doesn't know why. He said that uh, the only thing he can think of is that he has been working out more lately. He started working out a lot harder probably the last four to six weeks, and he thinks that could possibly have something to do with it. Um, So I didn't know if you had any advice or if you knew anything about working out, having effect on sex or anything like that. The conventional wisdom, which is backed up by research and data, is that exercise revs up libidos, that if you're exercising regularly, if you're working out, that you're going to generally be hornier, not less horny. I'm not saying your boyfriend is lying to you. Your boyfriend may not understand what's up with his libido. Sometimes the tide goes out and people don't understand why and they will look around in their lives for whatever it is that they're doing differently and think maybe that's the explanation, maybe that's the explanation. So he could have seized on this change that he's made, that he's exercising more, and looked at it and said, maybe it's this, because this is the only thing I'm doing differently. But the conventional wisdom, backed up by research and data, tells us that it's probably not that. Probably not the exercise, probably something else. We don't know what that something else is. But if it six months into a relationship, the sex is dying – and not great, particularly if you're long distance and absence makes the heart grow fonder, another bit of conventional wisdom backed up by research and data. When you are getting together, he's not sort of pumped and excited to see you. You know, another explanation could be that he has lost interest but he likes you and doesn't want to hurt you and so he's doing that stupid young thing of just letting the relationship go and go and go and letting you wonder what could possibly be wrong and reassuring you that nothing's wrong when he knows something's wrong but he doesn't want to say it because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. So he's going to drag this out and in the end hurt your feelings more. Sometimes you have to look at what people are doing and how they're treating you to figure out how they actually feel because not everybody is good at saying how they feel. If I were in your shoes and I was with somebody for six months and the sex was waning and there was no explanation, I would end it. I would look at that and say, there's something happening here that indicates that this is wrapping up, that your interest in me has reached its terminus. And if I were in your shoes, caller, I would pull the plug myself. Save the two-hour drive. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, I am a 29-year-old bi lady living in the Northeast. I have a wonderful relationship going with a wonderful dude, and 
Um, we're very open and honest about everything, which is great. He knows about my crazy exes. I know about his crazy family. He knows about my crazy family, which is all great. But there's one thing that I haven't figured out how to tell him yet, um, which is that I was molested when I was 22 by a family friend. And in the past, I've had uh, flashbacks sometimes when a man touches my breasts. And this hasn't happened yet with this wonderful, wonderful guy, but it has with other men. And I'm wondering when to tell him about this horrible thing that happened because I don't want to freak him out. It, it freaks out every, every time I, I tell someone it freaks them out either because they want to go kill the bastard or because they, uh, they see me physically freak out, start shaking. So any advice that you would have, I, I want to continue this open, honest, loving relationship and I just don't want to freak him out. If most of your body is a wonderland, but a small part of your body is a minefield, the guys you date have a right to know, not a right to know that. It would be in the, your best interest, their best interest, the best interest of the relationship if you disclose that. Because the last thing somebody who likes you and cares about you and may even love you wants to do is trigger you, is to accidentally traumatize you because they didn't have the info that they needed. Which is not to say that he's not allowed to touch your breasts, but if potentially touching your breasts, taking his pleasure from your breasts could throw you back into an ugly place, it could traumatize him to do that to you accidentally, unknowingly. So I do think you have – I don't want to say an obligation because I don't want to like throw obligations at people who have suffered abuse, right? You you have – it would be in your best interest, the best interest of your relationship to let him know that this is potentially triggering for you to be touched in this particular way and to to frame it that this doesn't always happen. It hasn't happened yet. It may never happen. If it happens once, it doesn't mean you can't touch my breasts in the future. It's just if it happens, if I'm thrown back, you know, we just need to put things on hold and go have ice cream and watch a couple episodes of Orange is the New Black and then try it again. Right, We just need to like let me clear my head. And then if it does happen, he is likelier to react in the way I think you would want a guy to react. Not as if he's done something wrong but something wrong was done to you and he's there to help you deal with the fallout. That he's going to be compassionate and understanding and sensitive at that moment if the sex you're having with him pulls you out and flips you out. Freaks you out. You say in the past when you've had these conversations with previous guys that they've had this gorilla guy reaction, want to go beat the guy up, want to go attack the guy and also very freaked out by the story itself. And you don't share the details with us, but the story itself is angering and and upsetting. So you don't have to give all the details. It's a new relationship. You can mention that as you did with us, the bare outlines, you were molested at 22, family friend, touched your breasts in such a way that every once in a great while when someone touches your breasts, you kind of flash back on that moment and it's unpleasant. That's all you got to say. And there's not detail in there that is freaking me out. 
It's just very matter-of-fact bare outlines. And so you can matter-of-fact bare outline it for this guy. And if he presses you for details and you know from previous interactions with other guys that the details crank them up in a way that damages the relationship and this abuse in your past shouldn't cost you new relationships going into your future, withhold those details. Say, you know, I don't want to go into it right now. It was it was what it was. It was unpleasant. And, you know, we don't need to unpack every beat. We don't need to unpack every moment. Family friend abused me. I was 22. I'm fine. It's over. There's this one little after effect vestige of the abuse. There's this, this fallout, this thing that happens every once in a while. That's all you need to know. And then you have a right to keep the rest of it to yourself. You have a right to not disclose everything to the new guy you're dating, just like you didn't disclose everything to us. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 29-year-old, and I have a question regarding um, my stepfather. Him and my mother got married about 13 years ago. We've never really gotten along. I find him a bit controlling of my mother and jealous of my relationship with her. Um, He's not very socially aware. And he has this habit of getting upset about tiny little things that I think most people would not find upsetting. Um, This behavior of his is repeated. It's happened like pretty much every single year that I've known him. He's blown up about some tiny little issue. Um, And last year, about a year and a half ago, we got into a huge fight. Um, He started yelling at my mother for no reason, kind of, um, regarding one of those things that people shouldn't get upset about. And I told him to not talk to my mother like that, and he responded with, fuck you, go to hell. And then ensued the biggest fight of my life. Anyway, I haven't talked to him for about a year and a half. Um, I don't really want to have him in my life, but I want to have my mother in my life, and I don't know how to negotiate that. Um, We're going to be all together at a family wedding in August, and I'm really nervous about seeing him. Um, Yeah, I think he's kind of emotionally abusive to my mom, and I really don't like seeing that. And she is not necessarily super happy in the relationship. Um, So anyway, I guess I just like some advice. I don't know how to express uh, everything I'm feeling, really, but... um, I appreciate I appreciate any advice that you have in dealing with the difficult spouse of your mother who may be a little bit emotionally abusive. Presumably, if this is the first time in a long time that you've had to be in the presence of your stepfather, you don't live near your parents, your mom and her second husband. So the relationship that you have with your mother is probably similar to the relationships that most adults in America have with their parents. Text phone calls, very occasional face-to-face visits because you live at different ends of your state or your city or your country or the planet. I don't see how this asshole being married to your mother prevents you from having that relationship with your mom unless he is indeed so controlling that your mother isn't able to get on the phone with you without him interfering, in which case the whole family needs to have an intervention with your mom about the asshole, the abusive asshole, that she is unfortunately married to. 
all you got to do at this wedding. If that's not the case, if no one's, he's not trying to interfere with you having a relationship with your mother, even if he can't deal with you and you can't deal with him because he's an asshole. What you do at the wedding is when you make eye contact with him, when you are in his presence, you say, how are you doing, Robert? About that solicitously, like you don't really give a fuck how someone's doing when you use that intonation. How are you doing, Robert? Take the question mark off the end of the question. You don't give a shit how he's doing, right? How are you doing, Robert? Be the bigger person. Acknowledge his existence. You break the ice. If he's not a scene-making asshole at someone else's wedding, and even if he is, so what? That he's just making himself look like a total asshole. He will say, I'm fine, Mary. How are you doing? Without a question mark at the end. And that is the end of your interaction with your asshole stepfather. And then you go on to have a relationship with your mother. And you can have an honest relationship with your mother. You should be able to tell your mother, I don't like the way your husband treats you. That is something that children should be able to say to their parents about their new spouses, about their old spouses, about their other parent. You can be the reality check that mom might need. Maybe everyone's been dancing around the way he treats her for so long. Maybe she's been completely gaslit. Maybe she thinks that she's not being abused because no one has ever said anything to her about it. And maybe it's not as bad as she thinks it is. Maybe he tells her that however he treats her, it isn't as bad as she might think it is because no one's riding to her rescue. No one ever objects that if you were an asshole, people would tell her so. So you tell her so. Mom, I want to have a relationship with you, but your husband is an asshole and I can't deal with him anymore. I don't like the way he treats you. Let's go away for a weekend together, just us two. I'm going to come to town, take you out to dinner, just us two. I'm going to call and talk to you on the phone, just us two. And when you're ready to leave this bastard, if that day ever comes, I will drive to town and I will help load the U-Haul with you, just us two. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight female. I always thought I'd be calling you with a sex question, but this is more of a daddy issues question. My father is a very conservative, conservative religious man, and he also likes to push people's buttons. He's kind of a know-it-all who really likes to debate and, and show how intellectually superior he is. These conversations end up being very circular, and he always wins because his belief system is the 2,000-year-old one, etc. Um, my mom divorced me when I was about 12 and I spent a lot of my life training myself to change the subject or otherwise diffuse the situation when he kind of goes in that direction. Um, and I've kind of learned to just kind of enjoy my dad for the parts I can enjoy, uh, theater, music, travel, etc. And then, yeah, just kind of change the subject when he starts to go, go off the wire as it was. My issue now is that my boyfriend of three, year, three years and I are um, about to get engaged, and I had asked him to talk to my dad first, not as a um, permission slip kind of thing, but more as a, I'm going to do this and I'd love to have your blessing kind of thing before he proposes. Um, we're not going to have, you know, any God stuff at our wedding, but that was a part of the, the traditions that I knew would mean a lot to my dad, and I thought that would be a nice thing to do to build rapport and mutual respect. However, um, my dad recently egged me into a conversation, and I shouldn't have let him do it, but he did. It was a very bigoted conversation. It started with Caitlyn Jenner and ended with bakeries and gay wedding cakes. Um, and at one point, he told me that a friend had come out to him as trans several months ago and that he had basically cut this person off. 
so I hadn't had one of those conversations in a, in a while with him because I usually cut him off, but he threw me for a loop there. So right now, I guess I'm wondering if I should still be asking my boyfriend to even discuss our engagement with my father first, or if because our ideas of marriage are so different and what it means and what it is, it's just so different. Maybe I shouldn't want his blessing. I really do want his blessing because he's my dad, but I know that I probably shouldn't want or need his blessing. And I guess more broadly, I'm worried that I've learned over time to separate the parts of my dad that I like and that I don't like, but I don't know that this is going to last or work forever because, like, especially when we have kids, I don't like want my kids to be exposed to that shit. And I guess I'm not sure what I should do at this point. If I should say, you know, I feel like I've said everything to my dad, so I don't think as much I can say to him, but if there's some sort of harder line, I should drop. I'm trying to wrap my head around my father's an asshole. I know he's an asshole. He's a conservative religious man. He likes to argue with people. He makes himself unpleasant. He argues in circle, Bible, Bible, Bible. And so I thought it would be a really great idea to send my boyfriend over to my dad to ask my dad to give his blessing to my boyfriend asking to marry me because you really want to drag your jerky, argumentative bigoted religious dad into the heart of your relationship. You really want to involve him in the most intimate details of your romantic life. So that was a mistake, right? Sending your boyfriend over to your dad to raise the subject of his intentions toward your genitals and the rest of your person for the rest of your life. Creating that opportunity for your asshole dad to be an asshole, creating more space for his asshole gas to expand to fill was a mistake, was an error in judgment on your part. Now that you know something about your dad, the the way he treated his friend who came out as trans, that you could have inferred that he's, you know, if he's a religious Bible-thumping conservative man, probably not a giant leap to get to anti-queer bigotry. You're having second thoughts about your father being involved in the lives of his hypothetical grandchildren to be named later. You can cross that bridge when you come to it. Maybe your dad will mellow in time. Maybe you can get through to your dad when you do have grandchildren by saying you will see your grandchildren a lot so long as you do not say shitty anti-queer things to your grandchildren, one of whom could be queer. And it could be very damaging for your queer grandchild to hear these anti-queer things. So I'm not going to let them see you much or at all if you go there. Here's where you go with your grandchildren. Thomas the Tank Engine, the 14th Frozen sequel, depending on how far off into the future your child-bearing events are. Those are places you can go, Dad. Go to this place. Go to this biggity, shitty place. You're not going to see your grandkids much. I think it's important to stand up to relatives who are hateful whatever form their hatred takes. I don't think in all cases you have to cut off contact with a hateful relative. What wears families down on issues around sexual orientation or gender identity, race, racism, anti-Semitism, often is exposure to relatives who disagree with them. And not just when you're arguing with them, but also by, through example, living differently than they live. The sooner people like your dad realize that they are on the wrong side of history, the sooner you, people like your dad meet and interact with your queer friends, 
the sooner people like your dad get the fuck over it or realize that they've got to shut the fuck up about it. Because if your dad can't come to his grandchildren's birthday party because the last birthday party, he went off on some anti-queer tirade because one of your trans friends or queer friends or the gay parents of one of your kids' friends was there, that's a life lesson your dad may need to learn. And he's not going to learn that life lesson if you excluded him from that birthday party in anticipation of him doing something jerky. And who knows? Maybe he won't do something jerky. Maybe he'll keep his fucking mouth shut. Likelier to do that, of course, with your encouragement to keep his fucking mouth shut, with keeping his fucking mouth shut on this issue, a condition that you as the parent of your child can lay down for your dad to have any interaction or contact with his grandkids at all. I would also add that we don't necessarily have to protect our kids from all of our shitty relatives and all of their shittiness unless it's toxic, unless it's abusive, in which case, yes, protect them, keep them away from those people because it can often be a good Life lesson. If grandma says something horrible and shitty and racist, you can then talk about racism. You can then talk about why someone of grandma's age might feel the way that she does. You can talk about the damage grandma's racism has done to grandma, not just to people of color who suffer in a systemically racist society because of the attitudes of people held like grandma, but the relationships that grandma has deprived herself of. Because of her racist, shitty beliefs. Racism exists. Anti-trans bigotry exists. Anti-queer bigotry exists. Anti-Semitism exists. And you will have to talk about all of those things with your kids. So if it comes up from grandpa, this shit comes up, you don't fail as a parent at that moment because your kid was accidentally exposed to a shitty, hateful relative. That is your moment to excel as a parent, to help your kid unpack, to think about critically what their grandparent said and understand racism and understand racists. So good luck with dad. Hi, Dan. I am a 24 year old uh, straight woman in a monogamous relationship. But my question is actually about a friendship, a non-romantic relationship. Um, My friend from college came to visit me for my birthday this weekend and she did something that she's been doing since college. I thought she had been getting a lot better, but she has a lot of self-esteem issues. She's a little bit bigger. And especially when she drinks, she just really acts out and I think behaves completely inappropriately. Um, I guess at my birthday, when we went out um, toward the end of the night, a few different people left. And at the end of the night, it was only couples. And one of the things she's really insecure about is the fact that she's never been in a relationship. So she ended up sitting on the, you know, up against the wall, crying. Um, you know, later we went to get pizza all together, and people would direct questions to her, and she would just say self-deprecating stuff like, "Well, I might as well not even exist, so it doesn't really matter," and stuff like that. And it just makes me not want to hang out with her anymore. I don't really know how to address it. I messaged her and said I had a great time this weekend. I'm sorry it ended on a sad note. She was like, yeah, well, I'm just sorry it ended as a couple's retreat. And I just don't know what to do. I don't want to remain friends with her out of pity. But if, you know, if I'm not enjoying my time with her, then I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is, what the mature thing to do is. So I was wondering if you could weigh in on how to kind of 
approach these things with her. I have, you know, over time, obviously discussed the things with her, but I just, I want to address her behavior and whether it's appropriate or not. I don't want to make her feel bad for the way that she feels, but she pushes, she makes her problem everyone else's problem. Speaking of setting conditions for being in a relationship with someone, you're in a relationship with this person. You're her friend. It is a friendship, which is one strata of relationship. And you can make as a condition of continuing to hang out and be her friends that she gets some fucking help. You should go tell her. You should sit down with her and say, I understand that you're insecure about never having been in a relationship. I understand that that's painful to you. But when you derail an evening and you become unhinged and unglued about this, it's unfair to everyone else who is hanging out with you because we like you and want to have a good time with you. It's unfair to everyone else. It is unfair to everyone else to just open the floodgates of your pain and to throw out these vicious self-deprecating comments. It really is a kind of attention whoring in the moment and it's unpleasant. And on top of never having been in a relationship and that being a source of pain to you, you will soon lose your friends and you will have fewer friends and then no friends if this is the way that you interact with people who like you. So I like you and I want to keep hanging out with you. You need to get help. You need to speak to a therapist. You need to get a counselor. You need to start healing, start working on this pain, start working through it, start getting a firmer footing so that you are still the person that I know you to be. So that person, not that performance of a more likable, affable person, but that person that you are, that nice person I want to be friends with is there. And that shitty person who's tearing you down, that person that you become when you drink, I don't want to hang out with that person. So when you drink, I am going to remove myself from that situation. When you go off like that, I am going to remove myself from that situation. I'm not going to be with you when you're like that. And you need to be like that less, which is why you need to get into therapy. And you need to be like that less. And you don't have to be like that at all. And to get to that place, I really do think that you need therapy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female, very happily married to the man of my dreams. We've been together for six years. The only problem is he won't have sex with me, and I feel completely alone in this issue because society tells me that as a 33-year-old male, my husband should be constantly begging for sex, but that's not the case. Sex has never been number one on our priority list. But we used to have a very active and adventurous sex life. But about two years ago, my husband was laid off from work. And this, compounded with some other issues, were a real hit to his ego. He became very depressed and our sex stopped entirely. Fast forward to now, he has a great job and everything's on up and up. But the sex has never fully returned. Currently, we only have sex about one to two times a month. And I've discussed it with him, but his advice to me is, if I want it, just take it from him. So that's what I try to do. But when I surprise him with a blowjob, for example, I'm met with 100 excuses before he finally gives in. 
this is obviously does little for my arousal and makes me feel like some sort of creepy rapist. I'm young, I'm attractive, and I want to feel desired. I get a lot of attention from men, but I hate that I always have to turn them down just so I can go home and be rejected myself. So my question is, how do I get my husband to want me? Or if he's really that disinterested in sex, how could I approach asking him to open up the marriage a little? I think he'd be receptive to the idea because we've both admitted that we don't think cheating is a deal breaker, but it's kind of hard to tell your husband you want to fuck other guys. Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Matthew Baggett, a Berkeley trained PhD neuroscientist and data scientist who's been studying MDMA for over 15 years. Hey, Matthew, thanks for jumping on the phone. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's not uh, address the caller-specific concerns just yet. I I just want to familiarize my listeners with the idea that – or the fact that MDMA, also known as ecstasy, before it was criminalized, was used experimentally and and sometimes very effectively by couples counselors when there was a married couple or a couple who had a troubled relationship. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Can you fill us in? Absolutely. Absolutely. So before it was made illegal, MDMA was used by a few pioneering therapists like George Greer, who's still around, in couples therapy. And he and others thought that it allowed people to talk about difficult issues without becoming emotionally threatened. Mm-hmm. And in, in studies that we've been doing, we find a similar effect. So it really does seem to help. What studies have you been doing? So we give MDMA to people in a controlled laboratory setting. Um, they're typically already experienced with MDMA. And then we have them do different tasks that we think might help us understand the emotional effects of MDMA better. We've had them talk about emotional episodes from their past, and it seems to be easier to talk about them. We've had them talk about loved ones, and it seems like people, when they have to talk about loved ones on MDMA, can think about those people in an emotionally deeper manner. Mm-hmm. And overall, it seems like MDMA increases what we've been calling authenticity, the feeling that you can just be yourself and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I believe MDMA, there's also some uh, research out there, some experiments that it's been used to treat and effectively treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Is that not right? Uh, That's correct. It's an experimental treatment that currently is being studied. And some of the studies look really wonderful. Other studies are sort of in the middle. And I think overall, we should be very optimistic about it as a treatment. And if you think about it, it's a very similar thing where somebody has some emotional issue that they can't really deal with on their own. And in conjunction with a therapist, they're able to handle the issue. Okay, so let's talk about this caller and her question and whether or not they would be good candidates for ecstasy therapy. So, you know, they used to marry 26, 33, and there was this slightly traumatic experience for the husband where he lost his job and they were in an economic tailspin, but now they've pulled out of it and everything seems to be okay again. But there's this sexual disconnect that is making her sad, making her think about wanting to open the relationship up as a last resort, but they aren't able to really communicate very well about it. Is Are they candidates for MDMA therapy, do you think? I would think so. Um, the caveat, of course, is that I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, but in healthy people in this situation, the risks would be very low, and there's reasons to think that there'd be some big benefits. Because you described it as enabling couples to talk about you know, a deep issue, an issue that goes to the heart of the relationship without getting defensive or without, you know, the, the barriers going up. Exactly. And, yeah. so, and so people, people on their own have been doing this, uh, taking MDMA to enhance their relationship. 
they tend to report three different things. One is the open communication, mm-hmm. where they can talk about things that normally is hard to talk about. Um, and the second thing is that there's often increased sensuality, where they feel more comfortable just exploring sensuality, maybe trying new things. And then the third thing is that often people say that the actual like sex act can be harder in terms of achieving an erection or getting to orgasm. Okay, so uh, getting back to the, this couple specifically... You know, the issue here is that there's this sexual disconnect, that he seems very disinterested in sex, and he's not talking to her about it. He won't communicate what the issue is. There's also her desire to, to uh, you know, ask him about opening up the marriage a little bit, but she worries that he will not react well or will panic. And MDMA ecstasy, it's the love drug, right? It just makes people feel so connected, so intimate. Like, it just brings all those feelings to the fore. And is what goes on then the ability to have this conversation about these fraught emotional issues without doubting your partner's love or your love for your partner because that feeling is so enhanced by the drug that you're able to talk about these difficult things without going to that place where you don't love me or you wouldn't be asking me this question about opening the marriage up if you loved me. Because what the drug is saying at that moment is, oh my God, you guys love each other so much. You don't have to worry about the love. Let's talk about the sex. Let's talk about these issues without having to doubt our commitment or our love because the drug just so enhances those feelings of love and commitment. Is that what goes on? I think that that's a big part of it. Um, I also think that there's a second aspect, which is kind of like, even if we, like, we definitely love each other, but even if, like, things didn't work out, it would still be okay. I would still love you, but it would be okay. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, an, an okayness with outcome that I think is also enhanced by MDMA. So is there a place where you can go and have couples counseling with MDMA, or do you have to go rogue and try to find MDMA on the black market and treat yourselves? Or are there couples counselors out there who are working with MDMA again? Only underground. So legally, it's not possible to work with any kind of counselor with MDMA right now. So do you have any advice for this couple if they can't get their hands on MDMA? Is there a more (laughs) traditional route that they could go? Well, traditionally, alcohol, cannabis, (laughs) demohydroxybutyrate. (laughs) (laughs) Or they could talk to each other. There's also that. Ah, I never thought of that. But they've tried that. And really, you know, MDMA therapy is still talking to each other. It's just talking to each other in a slightly altered state. Talking to each other when you've been blasted to a planet where you don't have to doubt your love and affection for each other because that is – the drug is pulling all of that to the forefront all at once in a very intense way. I don't want to proselytize for the drug, but every time I read about the the history of couples counseling involving MDMA, it sounds like a really good tool and it should be more – widely available or, or allowed under you know a therapeutic setting for married couples to pick up and use that tool mm-hmm, or am i or am i crazy but i'm talking to you and you're probably you have a pro mdma bias i bet i would say that i'm cautiously optimistic about it unfortunately the way the drug regulation system works in this country mdma needs to get approved for something that's and just politically speaking, something like PTSD for veterans is a really good political target. But once it was, if it, if and when it gets approved for that indication, then therapists could start using it for other indications. So I think if that's going to be the path that people are going to get access to MDMA for couples therapy, but it's probably going to take 10 years. Matthew Baggett, he's a Berkeley-trained PhD neuroscientist and data scientist who's been studying MDMA legally for over 15 years. Most recent study, Intimate Insights, MDMA Changes How People Talk About Significant Others, which you can find at the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Anything else you want the folks to know? 
I would just say that if you do use MDMA, test it first. Go to something like DanceSafe or another harm reduction organization and figure out if you're really getting MDMA and that women should probably drink sports drinks while on it rather than just water since they're susceptible to what's called hyponatremia or having too low salts in your blood. And where do you get your MDMA for your studies? Oh, um, for our studies, it's been donated to us by David Nichols, who is now a professor emeritus at Purdue and is one of the great heroes of modern psychedelic research. And what's his phone number? <laughs> like I said, he's retired. <laughs> Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Matthew. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, Dan. Hi. Uh, my best friend and I, she's another uh, woman, and we have a very similar background. We're both in our late 20s, early 30s, and we both have a, have a child, and we're both dating, and we have realized between ourselves that even though we bonded over the fact that we're both kind of bohemian free spirit types, that money is pretty important uh, for what we want for our respective children. And we sort of encourage each other not to feel bad about turning down relationship offers from people who really aren't prioritizing their career or are bad with their money. And recently I was confronted by... um, someone that I turned on a relationship with for, for other very good reasons <laughs> that I valued money too much and that they would never consider money when choosing a partner. And I snapped back that they didn't have a kid and so they didn't have a right to tell me what I should prioritize. I would not, I'm not looking for a sugar daddy. I do value a partner with, with a good income, a, you know, a sustainable, good income who's good with money. And I just was hoping you could give me maybe some language to gently explain that. Um, when it comes, when it push comes to shove, I, I have gotten much better at ending relationships early enough where this isn't working, where the phrase, this isn't working for me, covers a multitude of reasons. Um, I try not to explain it in too much detail, but it did sort of come up um, with my last dating experience and it's come up with among our other friends but we both have a lot of hopes for our kids and a lot of you know we live in a expensive world and we just want to make sure that our kids can go to good schools and um, that we can be home with them enough and that we're not bailing out somebody when we could be doing more stuff for our kids i'm going to answer the question that you asked which was how do you talk about this with the poor guys you're dumping because they're poor or they're not wealthy enough to provide your children with the life you would like your child or they're not wealthy enough or they're not wealthy enough to provide your child with the life you fantasize about for your child. You don't have to tell them anything and it is, you can dump somebody for any reason at all and you can throw out the three little white lies and you don't have to say you don't make enough money. It is easy to avoid getting into that circumstance though because it doesn't take long to determine whether a guy is making the kind of money that you require a guy to make for you to consider them as a potential future romantic partner. You see somebody and you go to their house and it's a dump and they have 14 roommates and 
they took the bus to your house to meet you and they can't afford to do anything and you ask them what they do for a living and they say they're between pizza delivery gigs. Don't keep seeing that guy. Head that off at the pass. But if, you know, the pizza delivery guy, and I'm not trying to disparage pizza delivery guys, some of my favorite porn scenarios have involved pizza delivery guys, is hot and you want to fuck him and you want to date him while you continue to search for someone who's a lawyer or a doctor, that's shitty. That guy, when you give him the explanation as to why he can't be considered potential future romantic partner or serious commitment is going to be pissed and feel used. If indeed you did that, I'm not saying that you've done that, but somehow you're getting into these circumstances where you feel obligated to give the reason to the guy. And if it's first or second date, you don't really have to give a reason. And by first or second date, you should be able to determine through small talk and Sherlock Holmesing it up and looking around and using your eyes to take in the clues whether or not this guy has the middle class to upper middle class to 1% income that you would like to marry for the sake of your children or child. Now here's something (laughs) – now about the question you didn't answer – you do sound a little gold diggery there at the end of your call where you're rattling off, you know, everything that you want for your child, that you want this white knight to charge up on his white steed and provide for you and your child, that you are leveraging your affection, sex with you to get stuff for your kid. And that's fine and people do that all the time and that is one of the reasons people marry and I think it's fine. I think it's fine. You know, We say that it's fine to marry someone because you're attracted to them sexually and emotionally and it clicks and it's fine to be attracted to someone because of the way they look. Like the initial attraction, because of the way they look, you can be drawn to them. And then dating and and fucking around before committing is about discovering if you like the rest of it too, the rest that this person brings to the table. And it's fine to have an initial attraction that's based purely on the physical. I guess it's fine to have an initial attraction that's based purely on the financial. Physical body is not – face is not all that a person is and it's a shallow way to judge people. Finances, 401ks, real estate portfolios are not all that any one person is and it seems a shallow way to judge people. But so long as you, you know, if you're attracted to somebody initially physically, so long as you are then while you're dating determining if this person is someone that you could fall in love with for the inside, no one has a problem with it. Well, I guess as long as you're attracted to somebody initially financially and then the dating is about figuring out whether there's an emotional connection there too, a sexual connection there too, if there's someone that you can love, someone who's going to be good to you and good to your kid, then I guess it's okay. But there's something about the way you rattle off the stuff you want for your kid that's off-putting. And I think would be off-putting not just to the poor guys you're dumping for being poor, but for the middle class to one percenters that you're hoping to date because they ain't poor. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment for the woman who loves to date damaged men. Um, I just wanted to say that often when women seek out damaged men in relationships like that, 
Um, it's kind of a cliche, but of course, like most cliches, it has truth to it. Um, they're usually trying to act out something from their childhood that is unresolved. Um, I know this from personal experience because for years I sought out damage done to date. It took one totally destroying me for me to get myself to therapy and realize that there was a lot more going on than just the rush of good feelings that comes from helping somebody. Hi, Dan and Texas. at risk youth. This is a comment for the caller in episode 453 who is experiencing low sex drive during pregnancy. Uh, there's a huge push to talk about the pelvic floor rehabilitation, but some women experience such a huge drop in estrogen when breastfeeding that they can feel just as much pain during sex due to that alone. Before my pregnancy, I was basically the horniest woman alive. I loved sex and I watched porn daily. And after pregnancy and starting to breastfeed, I felt almost asexual. Uh, I would see people kissing on TV. It would disgust me. I would try to have sex. It felt like I had a burning desert between my legs. Uh, I had to wait almost 14 months after birth for my period to return, and that was the first time I felt almost normal again. It had nothing to do with my pelvic floor. My OBGYN even remarked that my insides looked like I never even had a baby. <clears throat> so ladies without pelvic floor issues, if you're breastfeeding, and especially if you don't have your period back yet and feel like sex is disgusting, don't worry. I'm now 17 months post-birth, and I'm catching up on all the sex and porn I missed. Hey, Dan, 24 from the South, lesbian. Uh, I was just calling to tell you about my Friday because it was seriously one of the best days of my life. When the court ruling came down, I decided to kind of go public with uh, my sexuality because I hadn't yet and um, I knew people would react but I didn't know they would react so well. Probably it was the best day of my life. My family threw me a big party and rented a private room. My friends took me out drinking. Uh, the night ended with me me really drunk running in circles screaming equality in a gay bar parking lot uh, dancing with my friends in the range. Friday was great speaking to your past self on the podcast last week. It was a great day. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Peace.